welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome to Gateway this morning. Um, We're glad that you're here. We've been doing a series um, talking about the power of God transforming God's people, making us Christ-like. And um, I I just want to take a little time this morning. The plan is that it will be shorter because we want to come around the communion table at the end of it. And I I want to build on something that Chris spoke about a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about the role of the Word of God in the transformation of our minds. And one of the analogies that Chris used was he spoke about the gates of ancient cities, how the gates in the ancient walled cities were much more than simply points of entry and egress. They were, in effect, mini civic centers. They were places where uh, commercial enterprises were transacted, where legislation was enacted, where government was exercised. And literally what happened in the city gates affected the health and the well-being, the culture of the entire city. He built upon the idea that in the scripture, sometimes our lives are likened to cities. For example, in the book of Proverbs, it says a man who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city whose walls are broken down. And that's just one of many scriptures where you and I are likened to to cities. The point is that if our lives are analogous to ancient cities, what would correspond to those city gates? What would be that place or those points where the life and well-being of the city was literally controlled? Well, we aren't left to guess. Because in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23 and verse 7, there's a passage which says, As a man thinketh in his heart... And the Hebrew word translated by that English word thinks or thinketh is the word that actually comes from a root word that means the gates, the the sha'ah, the shagah. And the gates of the city, which controlled the life and well-being of the city, are likened in our personalities to, to the mind as a person thinks. Where our thinking goes actually dramatically affects the life and well-being of your entire person. The renewal of the mind is absolutely critical in the transformation of the whole person. Paul outlines it actually very clearly in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul starts off by outlining the tragic degradation and breakdown of the human condition. And I talked about this a couple of weeks back. It begins with a refusal to worship and a refusal to be grateful. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So the refusal to worship is the first step on this unraveling process of the human condition. The result of that fundamental point of failure in worship was that, in verse 21, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 28 goes on to say that their minds became debased or reprobate. So it starts with a refusal to worship. It dramatically affects the way we think. And that futile thinking 
results in a failure to act as flourishing human beings should. And the chapter finishes from verse 29 through verse 31 with these people being filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. When you come to Romans chapter 12, you are starting in Paul's thinking, the whole rebuilding process. In fact, it started well before this. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul is talking about restoration and transformation. And I want you to see that he takes his readers and listeners back through the very same steps in which mankind initially failed. Right worship leading to correct thinking whose outcome is healthy behavior. You see it in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Get worship sorted, Paul is saying. From that, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right worship affects the way we think. And then it says, and that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Instead of the behavior that leads to the breakdown of humanity, right worship and right thinking leads to behavior that is good and perfect and acceptable in God's sight. Now, so much could and should be said here about the renewal of our minds by virtue of time restraints, I want to just talk to you about one aspect of the renewal of your mind, and I want to talk about the recapturing of our imaginations. Imagination is a word in the King James Bible, it's used about 20 times, but if you add to that other related words like imagine or imagery, or even in some passages, thoughts, you come to understand that it is a frequently mentioned concept. And if you follow those usages through the Bible, you'll notice that more often than not, the imagination is used in a negative manner. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that the Bible says that our imaginations are evil. It's simply a recognition that our imagination, like so much of everything about us has been dramatically, significantly impacted by our fallenness. So when you see, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, you get some idea of how our imaginations have been impacted by the fall. Jeremiah at least 10 times in his book, talks about the people of his time walking in the imagination of their own hearts, and it was always in a negative way. There is a particularly powerful passage in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 8, where the prophet is directing his attention toward the idolatry of the people. And then the Lord says to Ezekiel, then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. What a powerful way to say that. Some translations have in the house of his pictures. We're talking about what is going on in their thinking, in their imagination, the chambers of their imagery. I want to talk to you very briefly about a journey that I've taken in terms of bringing some healing to the chambers of my imagery. It's a bit embarrassing to tell you the truth. I have told the story before, so it's not new. I, I think I probably told it 
maybe 15 years ago. So if you're one of those long-standing members of the church and you've got a good memory, apologies, you've heard this before. I was raised in a home that encouraged sporting endeavors. And as a young boy, probably like most children of my age, I played on the back lawn imaginary test matches for the All Blacks, for the New Zealand cricket team, all sorts of things. And that's part of growing up. It's normal, it's natural, and in my view, it's not to be discouraged. As I grew up, I played a lot of real cricket, particularly, and I played it at representative level. But what I would never have told anybody was that I continued to play even more games and at a much higher level in my head, in my imagination. Even after I stopped playing real cricket in my head, I played test matches all over the world. I would be doing the dishes or mowing the lawns, some activity that didn't require a great deal of conversation, and in my mind, I would be flaying some hapless bowling attack to all corners of the ground. And I especially, I'm sorry if you're Australian, but I especially delighted in thrashing the Australians to all parts of the ground. In my mind, I'd be playing effortless cover drives, delicate late cuts, leg glances, and... <laughs> and sometimes I'd be actually going down the hallway going... You know, and I'd see the ball disappear out of the, just raise the, raise the bat for another 50, another 100, another 150. And in my head, isn't it pathetic? In my, in my head, I played in all the famous grounds of the world. Lords, of course, the Oval, the Gabba, the Wacker, Wanderers. For those of you who don't know cricket and think I was just speaking in tongues, don't worry about it. The cricketers will understand. Unlike in real cricket, of course, in my head, I never failed. I scored blistering and stylish centuries again and again, much to the adulation of the crowds who were lucky enough to, will, to witness my brilliance. Oh, dear. As a non-Christian, of course, I never even gave thought to the rightness or wrongness of those flights of imaginations that never even occurred to me. When I became a believer, things gradually started to change. I would find my mind wandering. I'd be washing the dishes, and my mind would wander, and I'd be starting to play in innings, and there would be this slight niggle deep down inside in terms of, don't go there. But I always justified my thinking, and I would say things like, I'm not thinking immoral thoughts, I'm not committing adultery in my heart, I'm not seeking to get revenge or payback on somebody who had hurt or crossed me. This is harmless, isn't it? Surely? I remember one season, and it happened actually when I was pastoring in Cambridge, so this, you know, I'm, I'm not a teenager when this is going on. I was pastoring in Cambridge, and the Holy Spirit started to up the ante on this front, and the only way I can describe it is the niggle intensified, to the point where I began to understand the Lord wasn't happy with my flights of fancy. Now, I totally didn't get it. I, I have to just say that in my headspace, I kept just saying, this isn't immoral. For goodness sake, let me just one more time thrash Shane Warne for five sixes and one over. It's just delightful. 
One day, <laughs> one day I was reading a very old book by a man called William Law. 1729 it was written. It was called A, Co- a Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Those days they had very long titles in their books. That one actually is a very short one. A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And I read this comment and it just transfixed me. It said, imagination as the last and truest support of self lays unseen worlds at our feet and crowns us with secret revenges and fancied honors that hit me like a sledgehammer. No, my flights of fancy weren't immoral, but I discovered in that moment that they were nonetheless letting something flourish deep in my self-life that wasn't healthy. And I felt really convicted that this was to stop and that the Lord wanted me to change the patterns in terms of my imagination. So I said, okay, I'll stop. My goodness, I found that was easier said than done. This plant, I found, had very deep roots. You know, we are all familiar with plants having root systems, but what we don't imagine is that we as human beings have some sort of equivalent. And I've come to understand that a root system in terms of you and me is a habitual manner that I develop of getting what I think I need or what I suspect I lack. It is, it's a way that our inner being develops to obtain what we deem necessary for our survival and our well-being. Now, roots in and of themselves, of course, aren't wrong. We all have them, but it depends what they are drawing from. There are root systems that aren't healthy, as well as the fact that there can be ones that are good ones. If, If you're drawing, if I'm drawing from a root system that isn't healthy, then one thing I know is that the Holy Spirit is faithful in this process of transformation to confront them and start digging them up. You know, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And I started to find that the Holy Spirit went after this root system in my imagination that was feeding me with fancied honors and adulation, that perhaps I felt necessary somehow for my well-being. Now, some of you will be possibly thinking, God, Don, this is all a bit much. I mean, is there no area that he's not allowed to interfere in? And you know the answer to that question even as you form it. I like what C.S. Lewis says when he says this as good as anybody else could say it. He said, there was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted, some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. C.S. Lewis went on, partially joking to call God the transcendental interferer. Transformation is a radical process. When we sign up and say, I want to be like Christ, 
It, it requires radical overhaul at every dimension of our lives. I know the word radical is a word that's completely overused in our culture, but it comes from a Latin word, radix, which literally means the roots. To be radical is to go to the roots. It's to touch and act on that which is essential or fundamental to us. And I want to tell you, the gospel is radical. When John the Baptist said the axe is laid to the roots, he was talking about what God does when he comes to our lives. He sees that some of us have root systems that we are drawing on things that we deem to be necessary, which in actual fact are unhealthy for us. I found that these flights of fancy of mine weren't harmless games of cricket. They weren't simply dreams. They were a system that I had developed, a root system that I drew from that supported and strengthened the selfishness, the pride-fueled patterns, and that nourished me in completely wrong ways. So it wasn't just a matter of a superb cover drive. There was something much deeper going on in me. I'd created deep roots and ruts through long practice, and I tell you, challenging them wasn't anywhere near as easy as I thought it would be. I thought, I'll stop. But I'd be washing the dishes, and I would hit 50 before I realized I was even batting again. <laughs> I had to learn the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and I might be taking this out of context, forgive me if you think I am, but I had to learn the truth of casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And it wasn't an easy thing for me, and it took a long time. You know, when I first shared this story, this story I was just, I, I, I really debated as to whether I should because I, I thought people might be tempted to think this guy is just a, he's an idiot. He, he's not, he shouldn't be in ministry and might even take up an offering to get me some psychiatric help. The thing that gratified me and, and probably perversely was that I learned very quickly that I wasn't alone. And the very first time that I shared this story, I had a steady stream of people come to me and tell me their stories. Now, I have to say, it was exclusively men. And I don't know what that means. You know, was Glenn Campbell wrong? Such are the dreams of the everyday housewife. And they don't have any. And I can understand why they wouldn't. Changing nappies, cooking dinner, nursing sick kids. It does have a way of postponing dreamy imaginings. I don't know whether that's what was going on, but, but it was guys that came to me, and uh, they told me stories. One said, glad, you, glad you're a good cricketer. I've scored more tries for the All Blacks than anybody else on record. <laughs> I said, well, good for you. I'm, uh, I hope the man doesn't mind, but he's here this morning. He came and told me that he said, I've played more concerts with Eric Clapton than any other guitarist. One said, I've danced in ballet companies all over the world. Yes, it was a guy. It wasn't a girl. He said, one guy came up to me. He was quite ticked with me, actually. He said, I've flown more sautés than any other fighter pilot in history. And he said, you've just ruined it for me. <laughs> he said, I'll never be able to take off with a clear conscience again. <laughs> ah. 
I said, I'm in the business of stuffing up people's lives. <laughs> One guy came and hung his head and said, I'm the fastest gun in the West. <laughs> and then to top it all off, and this has never been bettered, someone admitted, me, admitted to me that he'd won World War II all by himself. <laughs> I didn't even have the heart to ask how you did that, but <laughs> I'm so glad you did. It made my um, forward defensive shots pretty pedestrian, I have to say. <laughs> Please, ladies, don't come and tell me your stories. Because I promise I will tell them. Okay? The process of transformation will include the Lord speaking into the root systems of our imagination because he wants us to learn to draw from healthy systems and in healthy ways. When we become aware that our imaginations are rooted and rutted in patterns that are feeding an old, unhealthy pattern of life, the first thing you do is you repent. And interestingly enough, the word repent comes from a Greek word metanoia, and it means to change your mind you start to realize, I need my mind to be changed. And then you have to learn to start the retraining process. By the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled by him, we start taking those, captives, those thoughts captives. So I'd be striding to the wicket in my imagination, and something would go, stop it. I'd have to put the bat under my arm, take off my batting gloves, and stroll back without facing a ball. And it's really hard to concentrate on washing dishes because that's not much fun. But I had to try and capture that pattern. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about virtue. And virtue is doing things, small decisions that you make that start to create a second order of naturalness. It's not easy for a start. In fact, those of you who have learned an instrument or learned a language, you know that there was some time in that process where you thought, I'm never going to get this. This is, just, this is just too hard. And you felt like throwing your hands up and giving up. But you persist, and ultimately, that second order of naturalness develops, and the thoughts ultimately become automatic. That's, that's, that's how you function. That's what virtue is. We start taking those thoughts captives. And I, I want to tell you, it was not easy. I found that those thoughts had developed a life of their own. And trying to take them capture, to, to, trying to capture them, was like actually retraining kids, little kids, that have had the run of the roost. And you now say, enough. And they say, says who? And you know the battle is on. Not in your families. And you have, to, you have to persist, and there are times. I remember times when Karen and I went to bed as young parents just beside ourselves, thinking, this is not working. What we are doing is not working. It's like, you know, because there was this clash of wills. These thoughts had developed a life of their own. I remember an old song that, that they used to, used to come on the radio when I was a kid. I don't know where it came from, from, but it talked about a railroad runs through the middle of the house. Remember that? Old people are nodding. The young people are going, uh, can we go, could you try rapping it? A railroad runs through the middle of the house, 
and you find very quickly that a railroad runs through the middle of your house. You've laid down tracks, you've laid down, and this thing has free access in, out, whenever it likes, and you have a battle royal on your hands. That's what virtue is about. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you start taking those things captive. And I want to tell you something. The neuroplasticity of your brain means that as you continue to do that, new patterns actually are developed, and they become the new go-to patterns. And instead of the water just simply running down the rut, they are filled in and new ones are developed. And, and I, I want to say God is not against imagination. He has given us the capacity to dream and to think. And the purposes of God, the dreams of God, in fact, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so often actually flow through the area of the imagination and what I found as the Lord started to say to me, stop that, was that it opened up possibility and space actually to start saying, Lord, what are you saying? And things would come into my mind. Pictures would start to happen. Dreams would start to emerge. He's not against imagination, but he wants the root systems of that imagination system to be tapped into his big story and to where he wants us to go as people. He wants us to be whole people. I remember a song, and some of you will remember it, not as far back as the railroad runs through the middle of the house, but it was the 1960s. It was a song written and performed by Peter Sustead, and it was called, Where Do You Go To, My Lovely? It's a song about a fictional girl named Marie Claire who grows up on the poverty-stricken uh, back streets of Naples, but somehow gets to become a member of the Jet Set lives in Paris, and the lyrics describe her uh, incredibly wealthy life. The lyrics are written from the perspective of a childhood friend who wonders in the quiet moments of Marie Claire's life where she goes to, what she thinks about. And the first verse says, where do you go to, my lovely, when you're alone in your bed? Would you tell me the thoughts that surround you? I want to look inside your head. My friends, the Holy Spirit wants to capture our thought life because they are the gates of our personality. What you allow in that place will affect the well-being and health of your entire person. This isn't just silliness, you know, with regard to playing cricket. This is about a root system that was feeding something in my life that was basically unhealthy and was poisoning me. And the Lord wanted that recaptured for his, for his purposes, for his kingdom, for his larger story. And for some of you this morning, as I'm telling my stupid story, embarrassing story about cricket, you might be thinking, oh my Lord. Some of you will, you, you won't have to be prompted to think or to know this is wrong because you know it. You already know. The Holy Spirit's already said to you numerous times, this isn't acceptable. For some of you, it will be a little bit like the fighter pilot who said to me, you've just stuffed up my life. I'll never be able to take off again without thinking about you. And you didn't realize that the flights of fancy that you justified by saying, I'm not running off with somebody. I'm not in some kind of you know, sexual you know, relationship with them. I didn't think it was immoral. But, but maybe this morning you are hearing the Holy Spirit say, but it's feeding something inside you that isn't healthy. 
that isn't causing you to flourish and that actually it's hindering the transformation process. If that's news to you this morning, then, then just when you go home, just say to the Lord, Lord, what's the deal with that? And I tell you, he'll be faithful. He will be faithful to start to work you through a process. It won't always be easy. It's, it is that whole issue of virtue, of choices that you make in the little places, in the small places where nobody sees and apparently nobody cares, but he does. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can see those things captured, put in their place, and the transformation process go to the very heart of the gates of the city. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.